listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Everyone else, take your Bible and open up to the book of Judges. This week we're going to be Slowing it down, we're going to stay in one chapter this week, chapter 13, and I'm calling this sermon Swimming in Sweatpants. (laughs) Swimming in Sweatpants. Uh, As you're turning there, I want to give you a really quick quote I heard from an interview, and it's going to foreshadow something that we're about to see in this passage, so hang on, buckle up, here we go. But this is a quote from a lady named Jedediah Bila. She grew up in a Catholic school. New Yorker born and raised, and here's something she said. New York, this is very recently, but New York has lost its soul. There was a rebellious spirit there, and it used to have an enclave where if you went downtown Manhattan, there were artists and writers, people who challenged the status quo. And of course, yes, they were always liberal, but they would challenge corporate America and Big Pharma. Big Pharma would have never allowed anyone to tell them how many jabs they should get. And if they don't get one, they can't stand in line at a deli. That was not the New York that I knew. So the big challenge for me was that I saw a hypnotized population like the walking dead, and I hate to say it, but just robotically walking around. And when I say a dystopian nightmare, I mean a dystopian nightmare. It just lost its spirit and its soul, and people have become allies of the state. It's just a bunch of people who want the politicians to tell them what to do. They have lost that fire, that energy, and the city doesn't read the same that it used to. It's not a hub of cultural activity. I'm sorry, but it just isn't. It's become crime infested, and who would want to raise a family there? And on it goes, but I'll stop, I'll I'll cut it off right there. It's a deep breath, everyone, like, wow, all right. What is striking to me about the part where she said New York has lost its spirit, its soul. Now, New York has never been a bastion of Christ-likeness, right? (laughs) Never. (laughs) No one would ever confuse that. Um, It's the epicenter of the world, a place where it used to be, leave me alone. Get out of my face. Get out of my lawn. No one tells me what to do. And that's not Christ-like. So please don't don't misunderstand me. But you have a world, the world, who's in that dark place already, They've gone another step down, another stage down into an area where they have apathy and they are just fine with being subjugated to whatever may come. And similarly, in in marriage counseling, there's a principle that often comes up. And it's if you still care, if you still are upset at the problem in your marriage, if it still riles you up and gets you fired up, you still have passion for that, there's hope, right? There's hope. Because the next stage beyond that is just complete apathy and you don't care. You've given up. I know. I'm, say a word of prayer for this <laughs> poor, poor kid. <laughs> I, know the, I know the nursery workers are amazing and I'm sure they are helping out this, this child. Um, <laughs> Um, But in our country, many people have turned into a shell of themselves. And in the most free country in the history of the world, you have people who now mindlessly line up to do what they are told without even thinking about their own self-autonomy. 
And it really, it goes back to the fact that they don't have a relationship with God. And so in effect, they don't have the true concept of freedom and they are going to be fine with whatever makes them feel safe and comfortable. Government has become their God and political ideology has become their religion. And I could say a lot more about that, but that's really just to introduce the point of what we're going to see here. If your eyes are opening, this same spirit is happening in our country because people have lost their spirit and they have given themselves over to fall in line with groupthink. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the passage today. So judges, if you're there, chapter 13, I'm going to get there myself. For 12 chapters, we have seen the people forget God, turn away from God, not listen to what he has told them, and rebel against him. Because of their rebellion, they have fallen because of those, those rebellion caused consequences, pain, and suffering. And then they feel that, and they cry out to God in repentance, and he sends a deliverer, he sends a judge. Last week, we actually saw that it wasn't true repentance. It was just sorry over consequences, but God, in his grace, sent a deliverer anyway. Well, yeah, deliverer. We don't even really know if we want to call it a judge. But now we're going another stage down. So look with me, Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. We're about to be introduced to Samson. But do you notice how quick we went from verse one to verse two? And if you've been following along with the cycle all, all through Judges, what's missing? There's no even shell of repentance, right? There's no even like, I'm sorry for my circumstances. There's absolutely nothing, but we go straight into Here's, here comes Samson. The people of Israel are so stuck in this lifestyle that for 40 years they are living with the Philistines and now we're fine with it. We're just good with it now. They have done evil in the Lord's eyes, but not in their eyes. They don't, they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing and now they've fully embraced the pagan lifestyle of this culture of the Philistines that they are, they are living in. So how could that be? How have they just accepted this dim and broken shadow of what they were intended to have with God? They just accepted the oppression now. Well, here's the first point. Number one, the sickness of sin. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, okay? We've had that phrase pretty much on every page up to this point, right? Every page in Judges, we've seen this phrase probably a couple times. This is the last time that that phrase is actually in the book of Judges right here. There's two other phrases that actually coincide with this, and it's the people did what was right in their own eyes. It's the last verse of the whole book in verse 25 of chapter 24, and it's also in chapter 17, verse six. The people did what was right in their own eyes. So step back and think about what the author is saying with this phrase. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The author is making the point that many of the things that the Israelites were doing were not evil in their eyes. 
It was evil in the eyes of the Lord, but it was fine with them. In other words, by their own perception, most or all of their behavior was perfectly acceptable. They didn't think, I know I'm doing evil in God's eyes. I'm doing it my way. No, they, he was just completely out of their minds, out of the equation, and they were doing their own thing, and they didn't believe their behavior was wicked. And this is striking at the core of the definition of sin. So we're going to take some time on this because there's really two big components in chapter 13, and this is the first one. It's, it's the sickness of sin. It's the first big piece. Uh, the, the, the word for sin in the Greek, in the New Testament, one of the words is hamartia. And it's an actual archery term that means you shoot the bow and arrow and the arrow completely misses the target. It's missing the mark completely. Sin is when we do things that are completely missing the mark of God's holiness, of the character of God. So anything that is not aligned with God's holiness is therefore sin. That's hamartia. Now, I need you to listen closely here because for decades, people have missed this. And this is a point that is, if misunderstood and misapplied, it can be very restrictive and oppressive to you, kind of like swimming in sweatpants. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that. But here's the point. Things are not sinful, okay? Articles of clothing are not inherently sinful in and of themselves. A particular beverage is not sinful in and of itself. Anything in life, you have to go to, it's, it's an inanimate object, it's neutral, right? What makes something sinful is the heart behind it. It's always the heart behind it. It's the way you use those things, the way you consume those things that can either be sinful or it can be honoring to God or it can be a good thing. It always goes back to the heart. So you can have the exact same thing and your heart motive behind it makes all the difference on whether or not it's missing the mark. And we can't judge, we can't judge people's heart motives. We can only observe fruit. We can listen to what is said because your words and your actions reveal what's in your heart, but we absolutely cannot know what a person's heart motive is. So if you think something is sinful, it better not be based off of what's right in your eyes. A good thing could be sinful if it's taken too far and is taken out of balance. Anything could be sinful if it's placed over God. And it's sinful for you to play God and demand that other people live in the way you think they should live. Because God is very clear about who he is and what he values and what he desires. It's to reflect his glory. So when we act in our heart in a way that does not glorify God and show his truth, it is sinful. Pride in yourself is sinful. Having, being proud of someone else, really taking joy and, and being happy for someone else, that's not sinful at all because that reflects the character of God. You see the difference there? But it's when it's focused on you and you are elevating yourself and robbing God of his glory that we have sin. So sin is a, sec, a sickness because it can go in your heart undetected. It's destructive because it deflects the glory of God and it always breeds disunity and dysfunction. 
Sicknesses, sin is a sickness because many times you don't even realize you have this cancer in your body and it can go undetected and buried under the surface for a very long time. Our world tells us that only you can define what is right for you. Do they not, right? I mean, that's, that's clearly out there. But this flies in the face of what God reveals about sin. The Bible always tells us that God reveals truth. He reveals his character in the word. He speaks to us through his spirit. God is the barometer of what is true and what is false. And if something does not line up with God's holiness, it is sin. In our hearts, we are doing it in a way contrary to God. That's why we read Jeremiah 17 today. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God reveals truth. And like we saw last week, not everyone doing what is right in their own eyes means it's a good thing. Common sense will even contradict the, your own eyes narrative, even if we don't have the Bible. You know, a lot of people will use the analogy of Adolf Hitler and, and, uh, and exterminating the Jews, right? Like, well, in his eyes, he was, he was doing a good thing. Clearly not, right? I mean, you could even bring that closer to home. We could talk about Margaret Sanger. And if you really look at the history that's been brushed under the rug, the hush-hush side of that, like, she had vicious, racist motives behind cutting down the black population to, to start Planned Parenthood. In her eyes, she was doing a good thing. It was actually an evil thing because it was completely contradictory and opposed to God's love for all of his creation, right? So it's not up to what the person thinks is right in their own eyes. It all has to go back to God's standard. Sin warps things. Sin destroys things. And you have to see the depths of sin to see it for the sickness that it is. And once you admit that my own eyes are not sufficient for determining sin, and that the majority's eyes are just as flawed as mine, well, then you just go to God and ask him to help you determine what, what do you have for me, what is good. So the Israelites had a psychological and, a, and, and cultural rationalizations and supports for their own sin. They were in group denial. In their own eyes or perception, there was nothing wrong with what they were doing, but there was a deep suppressed knowledge that they were out of touch with God and they were rejecting his will, just like Romans 1 talks about. This is why sin is so deceptive. There's a very thin line between hard work and making an idol of work. There's a very thin line between loving your family and making an idol of even something as amazing and of a gift as your family. An idol by its nature is deceitful. And every time you chase an idol, like the children of Israel have done in this, in this entire story, it will eventually disappoint you. It's like building your dream house on a foundation of sand. And when the storm comes, the dream crumbles. No matter what that idol is, the only foundation that will stand the wind and the waves of the storm is the solid rock, Jesus Christ. So here's my goal with this first point. We spent a lot of time on this one phrase, right? 
I'm like, David, are you sure this isn't going to be a really long sermon? I promise you it's not going to be as long as last week's. But this is really at the foundation of the story of Samson. This is the entire story of broken people and faithful God. Don't spend all your time worrying about other people. Don't allow yourself to get weighed down by everyone else's problems. Evaluate your own heart and move forward with the grace of God. Don't rationalize your behavior because, well, hey, everyone else is doing it. It's far too easy to rationalize sins just like worry or bitterness or pride. You can rationalize those away because they don't look that bad in my eyes. I understand why. Just take it to God and see what he says about it. As the 17th century Puritan writer Thomas Brooks put it, Satan paints sin with virtuous colors. He always does. Identify sin for what it is. It's not a thing or a place or event. It's a, it's a heart condition that is in opposition to God. Next point. Um, there's a lot less moving parts in this, in this sermon because the, uh, we're already in point two. But, but look at the, there's something else that's very subtle that's being made in this text and it sets up the foreshadowing of hope that's coming with Samson. But read the next few verses with me. Um, well, yeah, verse two through seven, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother, tells her that, um, Samson is going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be born with this Nazarite vow, and I need you to start partaking of this Nazarite vow. Um, she tells her husband, Manoah, and, and they're actually pretty obedient about it. They're pretty excited about it. So look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman, and she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? Sounds like a pretty good question, right? Verse 13. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of, eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So if you're wondering what this Nazarite vow is, we just read a little bit about it here. Um, this is something that goes all the way back to number six. And it was meant to be something that was for a short period of time where you were dedicating your life fully to the mission that God had given you. So you weren't to let any razor come, come on you at all. So grow your hair. Don't drink anything that was a product of the vine. So no wine at all. And don't touch anything, don't touch anything dead. Don't have any contact with a dead body. Its purpose was to ask for God's special help during a crucial time. And it was a sign that you were looking to God with great intensity and focus. And it was a voluntary thing that you did for a definitive period of time. And now this angel of the Lord is telling them 
Samson, this son, she's barren, by the way. I, don't, I didn't read the text there a second ago, but, but she is not able to have children. And, and the angel of the Lord is telling her, you are gonna have a son and he's gonna be a Nazarite. And I need you to start keeping this vow right now. She's accepted this word from the Lord. She's obedient. And now the dad hears it and he's ready, he's like ready to ask more questions. Tell me more about this. I want, I want to know, he believes that this promise is gonna come true. He's not asking for proof like Gideon did. That's, that's good, right? Um, just tell me more details on how to raise my son. That's what he wants to know. That's his prayer. And I don't think any of us have a problem with asking God for more guidance. But look closely at where this goes in the next exchange. Okay, let's pick it up. We already heard the angel basically just say, angel of the Lord tell him like, I already told you what you need to know, right? Keep this vow. Verse, and Manoah didn't really like that answer. He wanted more. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord and to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Here's the second point today. I'm calling this stifled by a system. Stifled by a system. He requested more information, which is fine. He didn't like the answer he got. Um, and I want to give Manoah the benefit of the doubt on all of this. But when you actually look at what's going on culturally, he wants, if you have someone over and have a meal, first of all, they're going to be indebted to you. He wants more information, he's digging for more information, and then he even asks him his name, which means that you're gonna be on a peer level. The angel of the Lord here, if you've been in this series in Judges, you will understand the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is, this is the son of God before he came in the manger. He's eternally existent and he's right here, ushering in this, this deliverer who is going to begin to deliver the people, right? So he wants more information. Jesus Christ's answer is, I already told you all you need to know, don't overcomplicate this. And he refuses to eat with him and he doesn't tell him his name. He just says, my name is wonderful. So let's park here for a second. What's really going on? <laughs> this almost sounds like a little bit like can't we just help this guy out? He just wants to know how to raise his son. So what's the answer that Jesus is giving here again? We just read verses 18 through 24. Jesus doesn't give him anything besides, I already told you all you need to know. And then he has this offering and he goes up in the flames with the offering and he reveals 
his true character of who he actually is. So what are we left with? The answer on how to bring up their God-given son as part of the outworking of God's plan, Jesus' answer was, you need to know me and my character far more than you need more information. Do you see that? Jesus is just revealing, look, I'm not who you think I am. He goes up in, in the flame of the sacrifice, supernaturally. He reveals that he's not just any old messenger. He's not just a human being, okay? He's revealing who he is. And Manoah and his wife see that and they fall on their face like, oh my, oh my word, I can't believe this. All the rules in the world would not be able to give you direction in the innumerable decisions and choices you'll have to make with your son. Parenting isn't a list of, of, of do's and don'ts and rules. That's not it at all. It's a deep understanding of who Jesus is and how I can show Jesus. And Jesus' answer is, I want you to see me. I want you to know me, who I am. That's all the guidance you need. Now, as we're going to see the story in the life of Samson unfold, his mom and his dad didn't do a very good job of, of teaching their son about who God was. But God's message to them is the same message he has for us today, to this day. Don't be stifled by a system. We think we need rules. What we really need is to know God. That's what we need. So many of us want to complicate our faith in God. So many of us want to turn it into a system where it's like, I got to check a box. I have to do this and that and not do this and that. The message here is all about the heart. It's all about the heart. We can talk about parenting for a minute here because this is so relevant, but Manoah just wants to be a good parent. He's just going about it wrong. And in general, parents tend to give their child fewer and fewer details as they get older. When, she, when your child is very little, you literally have to follow, around, follow them around and say, no, don't put your hands there, don't put your hands there, don't do that, don't say that, right? Like, do this, <laughs> do this. <laughs> And the older your child gets, the more, hopefully, the wisdom and values that you've incorporated into them so they can flourish. And the older they get, they don't need as much detailed instruction. In the same way, Christians in the New Testament, we receive far fewer rules and regulations than God's people did all the way back in the Old Testament, right? Because when you look at the Old Testament, God like laid it out in black and white. Don't eat that. It's not healthy for you. Be, don't, don't do this because I want you to be set apart and I want you to be different from these, these wicked pagan people. He, he spelled out the differences. But the longer and longer time goes, we're in the new covenant. Now we're in the New Testament church age. What are the rules that we have left? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Because we can see the heart of God. We see who he is in his word. And we're left with like, hey, here's, here's what he has for us. Many, many people miss the fact that it's all about the heart. Sin is all about the heart. Loving Jesus and loving your neighbor is all about the heart. We can't get bogged down and swim in sweatpants by like laboring over all the extra baggage. It's a mistake to make external rules a substitute for a mature relationship. 
And if you remember Romans 12 last week, Paul says that the Christian is not to be conformed, but, conformed, but rather transformed by the renewal of your mind. We don't get all these prescriptions. We have, we have the mind of Christ, the heart of God, and we have a clear mission to love. So the bottom line is, here's why a system is rigid and why your relationship will be stifled if you make it all about the rules. You don't need to primarily know about God through his external standards because you can know him through his spirit. That's what we see in this text. You can know God through his spirit. You don't have to only know about him through external rules. This is how it works in a relationship with God. This, and this is also what should be happening in our parenting. Some of you may recall a parenting conference we had. I think it was like a year and a half, two years ago now. It was a while ago. But John and Betsy Dirks came. And uh, I literally dug out my old notes from that parenting conference this week. Because he said something, John, John Dirk said something that was so incredible in one of those sessions, it's always stuck with me. He said, the way you should be thinking about your parenting is this. He gave a little chart, all right? Ages zero to five, discipline and rules. You're doing what God did in the Old Testament, right? You're revealing what to do and what not to do. Ages zero to five. Ages six to 12, instruction. You're explaining more of the why, right? You're getting to the heart behind it. You're listening to your kids. You're discipling them constantly. Ages 13 and on, by this point, it's coaching. By this point, Lord willing, hopefully your child knows God and they have a heart for him. And now you're asking them questions and you're guiding and you're coaching for them to be mature believers who can live for God, right? And what happens is, we get this messed up so often. We literally flip it. The natural instinct is for a parent to look at ages zero to five as, oh, it's just coaching. Oh, yeah, just go over here, Johnny. Oh, don't say that. Like, let's, let's, let's try this instead. There's no actual, in, there's no actual like, discipline. And, and like, no, this is right, this is wrong. You can't do that. There's, there's no instruction. It's just you get it completely flipped. And if you do the coaching and then the instruction and then age 13 and on, all right, we're bearing down, cracking down on the rules now. You better not do that. You have a very, like, you see how it's flipped? That doesn't work. We have to remember that even as sin is all about the heart, our relationship with God is all about knowing him, it's all about the heart, our parenting is all about connecting to the heart of your child. And this works the same way if you're in, in the workforce and you don't have kids yet and you're dealing with other humans, right, who are also sinners. It's all about the heart. So don't go swimming in sweatpants. Don't overwhelm yourself with adherence to a system. Seek to know God, his character, his person above the rest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of that leaves us with the final point this morning, shades of a savior. Look at verse 25. Oh, verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, 
he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Maniah Hadan between Zorah and Eshtalal. So verse 25 leaves us with hope. The spirit of the Lord began to stir. And worship team, you can come up now. But this is a boy conceived miraculously, a boy chosen by God to set apart to serve him, blessed by him and shaped by his spirit. Samson has every spiritual advantage. He's the last judge in this book, the very last judge. He's the last great hope for Israel up to this point. And we're going to see next week where it, where it goes and, and what happens, how the story unfolds. So to be continued on that. But what Samson really does is he foreshadows the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus delivers final salvation. Only Jesus. A couple summers ago, Julie and I took our kids to a family reunion in Tennessee. Um, so Julie's side of the family, they live like all over the country. They live in Minnesota, Ohio, Michigan. Uh, but we all met in Tennessee and, and we stayed at this big place where there was like a couple houses and there was this really awesome pool. So all these families, I mean, Julie is the youngest of five and they all have big families. So there's a lot of people, right? So we're staying at this house and they have this awesome, incredible pool. But this pool had a rule. Okay, if you were going to stay at this house, if you were going to swim in this pool, no matter who you were, whether you were a boy or a girl, you had to wear a shirt to swim at this pool. And those of you who know me know I'm not really like the type of guy who likes to follow ridiculous rules that don't make sense, <laughs> um, especially when it's family. And, uh, and I had a hard time with that. I did it. I wore a shirt for the first time in my life as I was swimming, and I was like, man, this is so uncomfortable, <laughs> just ruining the experience. I'm sorry, ladies, if you've ever had to wear a shirt when you were swimming in a pool. I really genuinely felt your pain there. It's just not right, not necessary. You don't need to weigh yourself down with a thick sweatshirt that's all soaking wet when you're swimming in a pool. And I'm all for modesty, don't get me wrong, but, but there comes a time when there's things that are not necessary rules that are placed in these situations that, that don't add to the situation, they don't help. Without Jesus, without an understanding of the heart of Jesus Christ, without understanding who your God is, you are naturally going to be inclined to add rules and regulations and to conform to a system and look at the fruit of that. What happens with Samson? Well, he rebels. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Like, he, he does not understand the heart of God, right? And he, and he makes some big mistakes. And, and there's hope. There's hope in this story. God is good. God is on the throne. But you can fool yourself into thinking you're following God. You can fool yourself into thinking you're free, but in reality, you're just enslaving yourself to something that you don't need to. Um, you can be enslaved to your own sinful passions. You can be enslaved to a system. But the longer you go your own way, you eventually numb yourself and fool yourself 
to the point that you lose your own soul. You just follow people, follow group things. Just make me feel comfortable. I need to know what to do exactly. That's the way our world defaults into. That's not the way God wants you to live free and bold and alive in his goodness and in his love. Jesus didn't come to tell you exactly how to live. He came to reveal himself and to give you his spirit. He came so that you could have life and so you could have it abundantly. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.